This is Space Time, Series 23, Episode 117, full broadcast on the 4th of November 2020. Coming up on Space Time, the Cyrus-Rex sample return capsule overflowing with regolith from Bennu, a new study suggests the best place to live in the universe isn't necessarily the Earth. And we look at Europe's Galileo satellite navigation system. It's the world's most accurate, but why is it even there? All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. Well, two days after touching down on the asteroid Bennu, NASA's OSIRIS-REx mission managers have confirmed the spacecraft's collected more than enough material to meet one of its main mission objectives, acquiring at least 60 grams of the asteroid's regolith. The spacecraft captured images of its sample collector head as it moved through several different positions. In reviewing these images, the OSIRIS-REx team noticed both that the head appeared to be full of asteroid material and that some of these particles appear to be slowly escaping from the sample collector, called the touch-and-go sample acquisition mechanism head. They suspect bits of material are floating through small gaps where a mylar flap, the collector's lid so to speak, has been left slightly wedged open by larger rocks. The analysis shows the collector head was flush with surface regolith when it made contact and when the nitrogen gas bottle was fired to stir up surface material. It appears to have also penetrated several centimetres down into the asteroid's surface. NASA science administrator Thomas Zubrucken says the leaking means mission managers will need to move quickly in order to safely stow the samples for the return journey to Earth. The images also show that any movement of the spacecraft or the sample acquisition mechanism head may lead to further sample loss. To preserve the remaining material, mission managers have decided to forego the sample mass measurement activity and they also cancelled a braking burn to minimise any acceleration of the spacecraft. For now, OSIRIS-REx mission managers will focus on stowing the sample in the sample return capsule where any loose material will be kept safe during the spacecraft's journey back to Earth. This is Space Time. Still to come, a new study claims Earth might not necessarily be the best place in the universe to live. And Europe's Galileo satellite navigation system. It's the most accurate in the world, but why is it there? All that and more still to come on Space Time. A new study claims Earth's not necessarily the best planet in the universe to live on. Astronomers have identified two dozen planets outside our solar system that may have conditions more suitable for life than this third rock from the sun upon which we survive. And doesn't end there. It seems some of these distant worlds also orbit stars that may be better for life than our sun. A report in the journal Astrobiology details characteristics of potential superhabitable planets that include those which are older, a little bit larger, slightly warmer, and possibly a bit wetter than the Earth. And life could also more easily thrive on planets that circle a more slowly changing star, one with a longer lifespan than the Sun. However, Scientists also found that the top 24 contenders for superhabitable planets are all more than 100 light years away so you'll need to pack a lunch if you plan on visiting. 
The study's lead author, Derek Schultz-McCooch from Washington State University, says the research could help scientists focus future observational efforts using the next generation of space telescopes, such as NASA's James Webb, which is slated to launch next year. Schultz-McCooch says astronomers will want to focus on planets that have the most promising conditions for complex life. So he and colleagues examined 4,500 known exoplanets looking for terrestrial worlds orbiting in their host star's habitable zones. That's the distance from a star where temperatures would allow liquid water, essential for life as we know it, to exist on a planet's surface. But it's not just the planet. The type of star they're orbiting is also important. Spectral type G yellow dwarf stars like our Sun have lifespans of around 12 billion years. Our sun's already been around for about 4.6 billion years, and it's taken most of that time for any complex life form to appear on Earth. Scientists speculate that many similar stars might well run out of fuel before complex life could develop. So, as well as looking for smaller, cooler yellow dwarf stars that might live a little longer than the sun, the authors also began looking for cooler spectral-type K orange dwarf stars. These are stars which are less massive and less luminous than the sun, but because of these factors, burn through their nuclear fuel much more slowly. And so instead of having a 12 billion year lifespan like the Sun, these stars could be around for 20, maybe even 70 billion years. And such a long lifespan would allow an orbiting planet to get much older, giving life much more time to advance to the sort of complexity currently found on Earth. However, to be habitable, planets can't get so old that they've exhausted their geothermal heat and no longer generate a protective geodynamo to shield the planet from the harmful effects of cosmic rays and the stellar winds. Like the Sun, the Earth's some 4.6 billion years old. But the authors argue that the sweet spot for life is a planet between 5 billion and 8 billion years old. And also, no matter what you may have heard elsewhere, size really matters too. A planet that's, say, 10% larger than the Earth should have more habitable land. And one that's about, say, one and a half times more massive than the Earth would also be expected to retain its internal heating through radioactive decay longer and would also have a stronger gravitational field, thereby able to retain its atmosphere for a longer period of time. Of course, water is also key to life as we know it, and the authors argue that a little more of it would also help, especially in the form of moisture, clouds and humidity. So a slightly overall warmer temperature, say an average surface temperature of around 5 degrees Celsius above what we have here on Earth now, together with additional moisture, would also be better for life. In fact, we can see this warm moist preference right here on Earth, where far greater biodiversity is found in tropical rainforests than in colder, drier areas. Among the top 24 planetary candidates the team have chosen, none of them meet all the criteria for superhabitability but one has four of the critical characteristics, making it possibly home to a much more comfortable life than what we have here on Earth. To find out more, Andrew Dunkley is speaking with astronomer Professor Fred Watson. What they've uh, found is possibly a couple of dozen exoplanets that seem to have a better potential for life than Earth. Now, to this point in time, Earth is still the only place in the whole universe that we are aware of that has life. But we strongly suspect there will be other places, perhaps in our own solar system, that harbour some kind of life, probably microbial. But to, to actually be bold enough to step out and say, well, we think these 24-odd planets are probably better than Earth for harbouring life is a pretty big leap of faith, isn't it? 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, um, that's well. It's a, an interesting idea. Are there, you know, places that can out Earth the Earth? And apparently, there are. This is some well, work. We're, we're making we're making it easier for them. Well, yes, that's right. It's, you know, planets that um, that may have conditions better than the Earth and indeed may orbit stars that are better than our sun. <laughs> so what has happened is a group of scientists led by somebody at Washington State University, I think he's also connected with the Technical University in Berlin. His name is Dirk Schulze-Makuch, and he has got together with some colleagues, René Heller from the Max Planck Institute for Solar System Research and Edouard Guinan of uh, Villanova University. So there you are, this group of scientists have basically looked at what they call superhabitability criteria. So not just habitability, but superhabitability. And they've looked through the list of four and a half thousand now known exoplanets to find candidates for planets that might be better than our own. And as you said, they found, I think it's 24, yes. None of them are within 100 light years, though. They're all quite a long way away. Nevertheless, so what they've done is taken these criteria. So first of all, of course, habitability doesn't mean that planets definitely have life. It means they've got the conditions that will be conducive to life. So super habitability means that they've got the conditions that will be super conducive to life. In other words, might be even better than they are here. So they looked at terrestrial type planets, uh, rocky planets, orbiting in the, basically in the Goldilocks zone of the uh, Kepler object of interest uh, exoplanet archive. This is uh, Kepler, the, the spacecraft that, um, that discovered a very large number of these exoplanets by the transit method. They pass in front of their parent stars and dim the light. So they've said, okay, take, take, just take the ones that live within the habitable zone or the, the liquid water zone, the Goldilocks zone, as we call it, of these objects. And then what they also looked at was lifespan, how long a star lasts. So our sun has a lifespan roughly 10 billion years, and we're about halfway through it at the moment. But there are many other stars which are cooler and less massive, but go through their hydrogen fuel much more slowly, in particular what we call K-star, K-dwarf stars. They've got much, much longer lifespans, more than 20 billion years, sometimes up to 70 billion years. So it means that if you have a star that's going to last all this time, you're giving life a longer chance to evolve. You're to some extent improving the chances of life kicking off. On the other hand, you don't want a planet to be so old that it's got no geothermal heat, that its core is not liquid, because the liquid core is probably what generates a protective magnetic field, and you don't want to lose that. You don't want a, your magnetic field to wear out so that you don't have protection from the radiation from your parent star, particularly because these K-dwarfs are quite active, and they probably spit out a lot more radiation than the sun does. So they make this point that the sweet spot for life is a planet that is between 5 billion and 8 billion years old. That's the zone that they think is the sweet spot. And then they talk about the size of a planet. Clearly, if you've got a planet that's bigger than the Earth, you might expect, unless it's an ocean world, that it would have more land. If it's a little bit bigger, this would suggest 50% bigger than the Earth's mass, you'd uh, retain more in interior heat. 
And so you keep the magnetic field going and you'd also have stronger gravity, which means that you could keep an atmosphere more solidly than, than a smaller planet. They also point to a slightly warmer temperature. Um, if I remember rightly, the Earth's average temperature, mean temperature is 15 degrees Celsius. They suggest if you go up about five degrees, and especially if you've got more moisture in the atmosphere, you've got a better chance of life. And they point to the fact that this warmth and moisture preference we find on Earth, because when you look at tropical rainforests, you've got much greater biodiversity than you do elsewhere, you know, in, in areas that are not as warm and moist. So those are the candidates, those are the criteria. They say that, uh, that this 24 top planet candidates that they've dug out, none of them actually meet all their criteria, including the things that we've just listed. One of them has four of the critical characteristics, apparently, making it, um, as they say, possibly much more comfortable for life than our home planet. So Dirk Schulze-Makuch says, it's sometimes difficult to convey this principle of superhabitable planets because we think we have the best planet. We have a great number of complex and diverse life forms and many that can survive in extreme environments. It's good to have adaptable life, but that doesn't mean we have the best of everything. So it's really quite an interesting idea, the idea of superhabitability. And when you do studies like this, uh, Andrew, it, it essentially sheds a bit of more light on our own environment and tells us a little bit more about our own planet, what its shortcomings are in, perhaps. That's Dr. Fred Watson, an astronomer with the Department of Science, speaking with Andrew Dunkley on our sister program, Space Nuts. And this is Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. Still to come, the European Space Agency's Galileo Satellite Navigation System. It's the most accurate in the world, but why does it even exist? And later in the Science Report, a new study shows the Atlantic Ocean has just experienced its hottest decade in three millennia. All that and more still to come on Space Time. Okay, let's take a break from our show for a word from our sponsor, ExpressVPN, rated number one by TechRadar. You may be wondering why you need a virtual private network. Well, it's in the name. It's all about privacy. Do you really want big brother tech companies, hackers, governments, and who knows who else snooping in on your online activities? Now, you might not have anything to hide, but it's still really creepy, and it could be dangerous for you and those you care about. Also, how often do you run across a website and you want to get information from it, but you find out that they're geo-blocked? It's all very frustrating, and it's becoming an increasing problem. And that's where ExpressVPN can help you. ExpressVPN's a simple and efficient way to protect your online privacy. It's internet without borders from the world's leading VPN provider. So, protect your online privacy today. And find out how you can get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com space. That's tryexpressvpn.com space for three months free with a one-year package. Visit tryexpressvpn.com space to learn more. And of course, you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. That's tryexpressvpn.com space. And now, it's back to our show. You're listening to Space Time with Stuart Gary. The European Space Agency's Galileo constellation is the most accurate satellite navigation system in the world. 
But why does it even exist? The 10 billion euro system, which went live in 2016, operates a constellation of 22 satellites, giving the European Union an independent satellite navigation system separate from the American GPS, Russian GLONASS or Chinese Bidou systems, all of which are operated by the military and therefore can be disabled or degraded by their operators at any time. Galileo provides free services for civilians with both horizontal and vertical position measurements to within one metre accuracy. And even greater accuracy, down to just a centimetre, is available through a special encrypted service for those willing to pay for it. Galileo also provides better positioning services at higher latitudes than competing systems, and it hosts global search and rescue services. Importantly, GPS and Galileo systems can interoperate, allowing receivers to be developed to utilise GPS and Galileo together, thereby creating an even more accurate global satellite navigation system. Current plans call for Galileo to have 24 operational and 6 active space satellites in orbit by the end of this year. The spacecraft are placed into three orbital planes at an altitude of 23,222 kilometres. Each of the 675 kilogram satellites has an expected lifespan of 12 years. This report from ECTV. Right after we won the European Inventor Award of 2017, we were invited to attend live the launch of the Galileo satellite. It was a spectacular experience to be allowed to experience live the launch of Ariane 5, carrying on board the satellites that just a few weeks later would be transmitting from space the very same signals that some years ago we had developed and had been drawing on a serviette in a Washington restaurant. The story starts in 2004 in a restaurant in Washington. Scientists from Europe have travelled here to talk about the future of European satellite navigation with their American colleagues. But the negotiations are a failure for the Europeans. That same evening, they discuss what to do next. From the start, we wanted to develop signals that were useful to the users for the next 20 years. Our ambition was to develop a system that would be the best for the next decades, not just as good as GPS, which was our main competitor at that time, but better. The five researchers have to ensure that Europe can build its own system of satellite navigation in orbit. Galileo, they are the waveform sculptors. They designed the signal for the Galileo satellite navigation system. Bonjour. Je suis Jean-Luc Isler, je suis de France. Me llamo José Ángel Ávila Rodríguez, soy español. Ich bin Günther Heiden, ich bin Deutscher. Bonjour, je suis Laurent Lestarki, je suis français. Je suis Lionel Ries, je suis belge. Without the work of these five men, Europe may not have been able to reach for the stars. We had to sculpt a superior signal that nobody would believe to be possible. And finally, we successfully designed signals having an unsurpassed accuracy already. They are more accurate than all the other satellite navigation systems in the world. The robustness and the positioning accuracy of Galileo first generation is already best one, but it will be again improved thanks to a new positioning service, so-called the High Accuracy Positioning Service. The accuracy will be better than 20 centimeters. Galileo is currently at the initial operation capability stage with 22 active satellites in orbit. 
and is already used by 1.5 billion users worldwide. At the moment, we are again scripting the future with the finalization of the data message improvement for the current generation of Galileo in order to provide the full services. We greatly contributed to the development of the Galileo first generation from the beginning. And now that the system is already providing initial open services, we have already started to work on the next generation. The Galileo second generation satellites will be launched somewhere beyond 2024 and will transmit signals that will be up in the skies until mid of the 21st century. Since none of us has a crystal ball, Galileo's second generation has to be built, to be flexible and to be robust. Flexible in order to accommodate the needs of the users in about 30 or 40 years and robust to withstand the challenges of a changing world like unintended and intended interferences and cybercrime. The new system will be backward compatible. Digitalization will play a major role in terms of adaptability and applications. The new services of Galileo first generation will show very some significant progress in terms of accuracy, also in terms of authentication to reach the full operational capability. Galileo second generation will be a significant step forward. The works are going on, but it is too soon to speak about it more. For their patented inventions for the first generation signal of Galileo, the five were awarded the European Inventor Award in 2017. Galileo is a European success story. This year, 2020, has clearly shown how fundamental it remains to be for a society in general to be able to depend on your own means, on your own capabilities, when it comes to providing services to the citizens. That's exactly the same reason why we continue to work to improve the Galileo first generation now towards the next step. There are two main reasons why it was the right way for Europe to build its own satellite navigation system. First of all, we needed our own satellite navigation system under our own control, a system that would break the monopoly of the previous GNSS systems. And secondly, there's so much high-tech manufacturing involved in satellite navigation, and there's no better place to do that than in Europe. It really is a space project for every citizen. Technology that affects everyone, not only when they navigate with their phones. GNSS is a fundamental backbone of modern society. When making a phone call, for example, the base stations are synchronized by GNSS. It's used in the critical infrastructure of every country. It impacts every business, and therefore it's vital that European countries have access to their own satellite navigation system. The European Commission recently announced that it will accelerate its investment in launches, space exploration and the implementation of the second generation navigation satellites to ensure European space sovereignty. Galileo is the centerpiece of this sovereignty and is set to become the most modern GNSS in the world. The beginner being able to provide the elementary part of such a system. I hope we will be able to experience the launch of the first satellites of the second generation, but this time transmitting the new signals that will be up in the sky 
for the next 50 years of global satellite navigation made in Europe. Time now to take another brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. A new study has found that young people who came out as bisexual are more likely to smoke compared to those who are straight or gay. The findings, reported in the Journal of the American Medical Association, looked at the smoking habits of some 8,000 people. They found there was no increased risk in young people who were straight or those who identified as being lesbian or gay. The authors say more research is needed in order to determine why bisexual young people should be at greater risk of smoking. The Atlantic Ocean has just experienced its hottest decade in three millennia. The findings, reported in the Journal of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, track changes in the Atlantic's temperature going back some 2,900 years by studying sedimentary cores from the Canadian Arctic, which fluctuate along with temperature. Oceanic temperatures tend to rise and fall in cyclic patterns over decades and even centuries. And the cores showed this regular rise and fall of Atlantic Ocean temperatures. But they also showed something else. In recent decades, there's been an unprecedented increase in the speed at which the ocean's heating up. The authors say the findings are a dire sign for the state of the oceans, because rising sea temperatures power increasingly severe hurricanes. Paleontologists have identified a new species of pterosaur in China. The new species, named Ordocipterus planinathus, lived between 120 and 110 million years ago during the early Cretaceous. A report in the journal China Geology says the new species was identified from a partial tooth and from incomplete fossilized anterior portions of articulated lower jaws discovered at a dig site in Inner Mongolia. Pterosaurs were a large group of highly successful flying reptiles that lived during the age of the dinosaurs between 210 million and 165 million years ago. And they include the largest flying animals of all time, with wingspans exceeding 9 metres and standing as tall as a giraffe. Soil testing around the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris suggests that nearly a tonne of lead dust was dropped within a kilometre of the blaze. Scientists found lead contamination was also twice as high in areas downwind of the fire compared to places just outside the path of the smoke plume. A report in the journal GeoHealth says, while the neurotoxic metal is dangerous, especially to kids, exposure from the cathedral's lead dump was probably dwarfed by the impact of leaded petroleum gasoline from previous decades. However, the authors point out the issue was overlooked and testing should have been done a lot sooner. And time now to check out the latest from the world of technology with Alex Sahara-Vroit from ITY.com. This week, Alex road tests the new iPhone 12. Managed to get my hands on one and have a look. And the, the screen looks fantastic. It's nice and thin and it feels good in the hand. I mean, these are just the iPhone 12 Pro and the iPhone 12. The Mini and the Max are yet to come. But uh, there's an interesting video from the Everything Apple Pro YouTube site where the reviewer was checking out not only the speed of the A14 processor, which is a big jump over the A13 from last year's phones and all the previous iPhones before it, but also the fact that the iPhone 12 Pro range has six gigabytes of RAM. And so what he was able to discover was that as he was running his tests to compare the multitasking between the older phones and the newer phones, he noticed that on the iPhone 12 Pro, 
with six gigabytes of RAM, that the phone wasn't having to reload web pages and reload apps after it had gone into the background, which is something you've seen on previous phones. We've all opened up our iPhones. If you have an iPhone, open up a different tab and suddenly it's reloading it rather than it just being there, as would be the case on your computer. And so these are the first phones that have had this much uh, RAM, first iPhones, and you have Android phones that have even more RAM. But uh, Apple has finally put enough RAM in there to mitigate what appears to have been the problem of multitasking causing pages to reload. And this means a faster, smoother experience. So I'm looking forward to testing that more myself. And it should mean a better iPhone experience for us all. How's it comparing to the Galaxy Note 20? Well, that's Samsung's flagship phone. And they've put plenty of RAM and the fastest processor they can put inside there. But the thing is that every year Apple comes out with a processor that smokes the competition by a long shot. I mean, Apple was the first to go to 64-bit as an example. And every year when the speed tests come out, Apple's sometimes it's the case that the processor from last year is still faster than the fastest processor from the Android side of the fence. So Apple has purchased its own processor, you know, smarts, and they bought a company called PA Semi back in 2008, and they have been developing their own chipsets for a long time. They just used ARM as a reference design, but they have you know, wildly customized what they're doing. And so it's much more advanced than the competition. And they keep winning speed tests and, you know, that's the, the fruits of their labors have been, have been have borne incredible fruit in that they have the fastest smartphones every year. You've used both phones now. Which do you like? Look, I'm personally an iPhone person. I prefer the uh, interface. I prefer the consistency. It doesn't matter which iPhone you use. It's the same interface. With Androids, you, you have different interfaces for Samsungs, Googles, Motorola's, LGs. I mean, there is some commonality there, but often they have different skins. And also the iPhones have a stronger emphasis on privacy and usually the apps are better on an iPhone because there's more of a commonality between iPhones and developers can develop to a platform that has very few changes. Whereas on the Android side of the fence, you have to develop for something that has very low end smartphones, you know, down to $100 up to the smartphones that are $2,000 or more. And you have such a range that sometimes you have to develop for the lowest common denominator. So for me personally, the best experience is on iPhone. But that's not to say that Android hasn't also grown in leaps and bounds over the years. There's some new tech coming out regarding virtual reality headsets. Tell us about it. Yes, well, when I first tried a virtual reality headset, I noticed that although the screen had three or 400 pixels per inch and you couldn't see any of the individual pixels, the moment you put it into one of those headsets and you're looking at it basically an inch away from your eyes, you could see the individual pixels and you could see that dreaded screen door effect that very early uh, data projectors were very famous for. And that's quite an, uh, an annoying thing. It, it sort of breaks you out of the idea that you're in reality. I mean, it, you really knew you were in virtual reality. So it's interesting to see that Samsung and Stanford researchers have created a an OLED screen with 10,000 pixels per inch. And that is a level that effectively could deliver what looks like real reality. You know, you, you couldn't tell the difference between what you were seeing, uh, whether it was generated by a computer or actual reality itself. And so obviously this is just the beginning. Uh, there are no commercial devices like this on sale as yet, but we need the researchers and the tech companies to work together to create these things so that we do have these unbelievably sharp screens that uh, can simulate reality like nothing else. And this will also be very helpful when we have the augmented reality glasses uh, because the the amount the graphics that we see superimposed on reality will also look much more realistic and much sharper, and it just bodes well for the future of graphics that uh, we can see. And the only thing probably after that is somehow beaming it directly into the optic nerve or wirelessly transmitting it into the brain matrix style. And I think you know ten thousand pixels per inch screens are going to come before that.
you know, although the phones have gained such great pixels per inch, when you looked at them, when they were one inch away from your eyes, you really could see that difference. And it was quite jarring because, you know, it was, it was annoying to look at. And so that's something that when the researchers say that a 20,000 pixel per inch is actually the theoretical limit for such things, but plenty of theoretical limits have been broken in the past. So will this sort of screen be on our smartphones soon? Maybe in 10 years' time. You need oh. massive horsepower, massive battery power to, to do it. It's still in the experimental stage. The fact that they've developed it, though, is a great sign because it, it shows you what's coming. That's Alex Saharov-Royt from ity.com. That's the show for now. Spacetime is available every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday through Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, Acast, Amazon Music, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, YouTube, your favorite podcast download provider, and from Spacetime with StuartGary.com. Spacetime's also broadcast through the National Science Foundation on Science Zone Radio and on both iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio. And you can help to support our show by visiting the Spacetime store for a range of promotional merchandising goodies. Or by becoming a Spacetime patron, which gives you access to triple episode commercial free versions of the show, as well as lots of bonus audio content which doesn't go to air, access to our exclusive Facebook group and other rewards. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.com for full details. And if you want more space time, please check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as heaps of images, news stories, loads of videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at StuartGary on Twitter, at SpacetimewithStuartGary on Instagram, through our Spacetime YouTube channel. And on Facebook, just go to facebook.com forward slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. And Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 